So welcome to the HRW Shift podcast, episode six. In this podcast series, we're exploring a bit about the intersection of behavioral science and digital technology, specifically trying to look at some important learnings from behavioral science about how to really optimize digital interventions aimed at behavior change. So that might be an app trying to increase medication adherence. It might be an online platform supporting weight loss or delivering patient support. It could be a virtual reality simulation, training on infusion procedures or devices, or a mobile phone app looking at helping people stop smoking. This series is constructed of interviews with experts in some complementary fields. And as the first episode in this series, we are joined by Jonathan Lovett-Young, and we're delighted to welcome him to the podcast and get his perspective on the intersection between UX, or user experience, and behavioral science. Welcome, John. Thank you very much. And uh, so you and I met six or seven years ago at the London Behavioral Economics Network meetup on, on a boat. <laughs> yeah, it was the Tattersall Castle. And I was really interested at what was going on with behavioural change while drinking. And at the time, you were working for a consultancy um, in user experience. And since you've left and formed your own firm, and we've also since had the distinct pleasure of working together. But I must confess that at the time we met on the Tattersall Castle, I didn't really understand what user experience was. So for the benefit of past me and any listeners who might be feeling the same way, maybe it would help if you start by just telling us a little bit about what user experience is as a discipline. Of course. Well, user experience is about design, but I don't mean design as in the colors. I mean, design as a system for users. So that might be designing a marine interface or, or a website. And it really takes into consideration three areas. The first is the brand, being able to kind of represent those values and differentiate from competitors. The second, you know, the business, what are the kind of commercial requirements? And last and possibly, you know, I could argue the most important is the customer, uh, you know, with their needs. And when you're designing, there's three different maturities. I think this is, you know, kind of a, a common problem marketeers make. The kind of the hygiene is the utility. It's where you've got to meet the needs and goals of those users. You know, the second is the usability, which is about reducing friction. You often hear about that in customer experience. And the last is about pleasurability, which is about making something, you know, enjoyable and repeatable. And often in an organization, managers want to jump straight in at the top to the pleasurability stuff, because that's that's actually where some of the behavioral change stuff uh, sits as a topic. But if you're going to be of use to someone, you've got to do the basics. You've got to do that kind of, you know, utility thing really well, which means you've got to understand who your customers are and what they want. (laughs) You would not believe how many large organizations don't follow a process called UCD. That's just, it, it's the original science of user-centered design. They basically, you know, they think they know best. And these are the types of organizations who get disrupted. It's their culture, which is the hardest thing to change. They think you can just inject a little bit of user research mid-project and everything will be fantastic. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a reasonable summary of what UX is all about. Yeah, that's a great summary. And I think that challenge of 
having an actual need at the heart of the offering, having a utility that you're actually that is relevant to your customers and not driven from within the business is definitely a challenge that really resonates. And and again, some of that can originate potentially from behavioral science that we can recognize that there are needs that could be met through technology rather than starting with the idea of, oh, we should st- we should create an app and it should be really engaging for people, that there's a genuine need at the heart. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things which many organizations they still fail to realize is that kind of push versus pull. You know, the, the kind of the pushes where they have a messaging house, a bunch of communications, and they think, well, we've got some segmentation, so we're going to push all these messages uh, you know, down to them. And, you know, it's the kind of the old mindset of build it and they will come. Whereas, you know, what you really need to do is have a poll. You need to have something which actually allows someone to achieve their own goal. So they want to engage frequently. That That's kind of like, you know, the kind of key thing to do. Yeah, that sounds really challenging to achieve. And I think, you know, you started to talk about user-centered design thinking about kind of user experience or UX, thinking about user experience as a as a discipline, where does it originate from? What domains of expertise does it pull on? I think originally it started off with the library science, which I guess in the context of digital became known as information architecture. Uh, you know, as the web kind of evolved from those very early hypercard instances, which were kind of you know known as CD-ROM back in the day, those kind of uh, library experts were the people to organise those kind of quite large volumes of information and put a taxonomy around them. So you know these things could become navigable over time as kind of websites matured from being we'll just call them you know repositories because that's what they were of large information. You have this kind of these additional, uh, just like a blend of strategy, because it was not just kind of uh, resigned to be about information design. It's about trying to well, what objectives are we trying to you know meet here to differentiate uh, the business uh, from you know all the competition. And then you had kind of the human factor side of things with the you know human research. It's like well, who who is using this? What, what are they trying to do? It's no longer just about making it usable by organizing that information. And increasingly so, it's become about having you know, a really good understanding of technology um, and how you can use that technology to ultimately de- deliver a better user experience. It may well be, for instance, like voice. You know, voice could be the correct channel over something which is textual. Um, you know, depending on the very specific project, You've got these different kind of levels, you know, whether it just requires a small amount of strategic thinking, a huge volume of kind of information organization and, and quite a dose of kind of, you know, technology. And I think that's about putting together the perfect blendy team. It's never going to just be an individual. And, you know, I notice every time you and I have the opportunity to chat and certainly in a lot of the behavioral science circles that I've been running and I I come across a lot of uh, people who are UX experts and work on behavior change. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is kind of the distinction between some of the behavioral sciences like behavioral economics and psychology and to what extent user experience is distinct from those behavioral sciences versus 
pulling on those disciplines and if so kind of where it's using that type of expertise all right well i mean often i'm asked to um you know increase conversion that's something really common especially you know and unsurprisingly in kind of retail e-commerce people want to shift you know more, more product and that conversion in a more b2b context can be you know we want we want to engage our audience more the conversion is about potentially count sign up that's the vanity metric that someone in marketing has kind of decided when you're looking at increasing conversion there's different techniques one of the first things is about data analysis you're you're trying to understand where the friction is to kind of you know strip that out you can use psychology the probably the best way of kind of thinking about how that's used is around persuasion you, you may be trying to get people through a choice flow as fast as possible by designing and an intentional design of a range architecture. Because, you know, what you're going to do is you're going to use a series of biases so someone can select a product as fast as possible and move to basket. I mean, that use of kind of psychology is really a subset of designing for a goal. But in that case, that goal is the business's goal. It's not, it's not necessarily the individual. The individual might say, well, I want it to be easy and quick. But what they'll never say is, I want to be manipulated. <laughs> they might say, I don't, I don't mind. And there's a fine line here between persuasion and manipulation. And as a rule of thumb, uh, we should not be in the business of trying to manipulate an individual. When, when you're talking more directly about the behavioral economics end of the wedge, business often want something which I call, you know, it's about achieving stickiness. They want that kind of, you know, regular customer visiting, whatever it is, it's like high frequency of logging in. And normally what I always say to a business is, when you start thinking about habit formation, what you're really asking is for that individual, that end customer to do something 27 consecutive times with no more than five days between times. That's the only way you're going to build a habit. So have a think about if you're selling some particular kind of premium face cream, for instance, the replenish rates on that, they could quite feasibly be every three months. So what kind of service are you offering and developing that's useful for the customer, which is going, going to encourage that behavior of coming back 27 consecutive times? When you contextualize it like that, you say, well, that's where the science of behavioral economics comes in. To, to kind of form that habit, you're going to have to use models like, you know, Hook from Near Isle and, you know, and, and probably like Professor Frog from Stanford. They, they've got a variety of kind of models uh, like BMAP because yeah. it's about deploying the variable rewards. That user has no intention and actually probably no need to engage with you so frequently. And that's why you need to start using those techniques. And I, I know that from kind of my time designing uh, basket flows uh, for pretty large commerce sites like grocery. You've got to kind of do that kind of continual inspiring because sometimes those kind of habit cycles, they lose their efficacy over time because people understand they've kind of had that kind of initial you know, awareness made they then they then know that they're going to get the reward and they don't make any kind of investment themselves mm -hmm. and you have to kind of keep it new and interesting to keep it uh, highly effective
And what's a basket flow? Sorry. Oh, so basket flow is the, is the holy grail of e-commerce. At some levels, it doesn't really matter how often people are browsing around the site. The moment of truth, that conversion is when you go check out. And the checkout is where you use a whole series of uh, design techniques. Like, And you will recognize this yeah. the next time you go through a website. We will intentionally strip out all the primary navigations. Think about it as a, as a funnel. We remove all the possible exit paths from that funnel to ensure you go through that kind of the checkout process. Because until you see the confirmation page, that business doesn't actually have your cash. Yeah. And people do exit the basket funnel, don't they? They do, and you know, and then you start seeing CRM initiatives. Um, well, it's typically called basket abandonment mm-hmm. because if they've somehow managed to authenticate you, grab hold of your kind of either a social handle or your email address, you, you know, this will be familiar with everybody. You'll quickly have that to enable you to kind of pick up where you left off. Yeah, and you know it's it's pretty well known in commerce circles. Basket abandonment emails can have somewhere around like sort of forty percent chance of getting that customer to re-engage. Yep, I've I've fallen for them myself or benefited from them, I should say, actually. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it definitely rings a bell. So thinking about you know our types of clients are typically pharmaceutical, medical device companies, and The time that we usually recognize the benefit of a user experience expert is when they've come to us with a kind of offering that they usually they've mentioned something in their RFP about usability, engagement, um, you know, the, the words that for us really ping with user experience. But, you know, this is your opportunity to speak directly with our clients and perhaps we're not even recognizing the right time. So when should companies be engaging with user experience experts? Well, it's really at the start of any work and, and possibly even at the, the planning stage before any kind of commissioning's happened, the kind of looking at, well, how have we understood our customers' needs and goals? I see regularly, you know, UX consultants will get engaged once something is actually made to give almost what's called, a, you know, a, a heuristic review or an expert opinion to say, will this work? You know, often by then, the horse is already kind of bolted. Aside from those kind of pretty intensive big bang projects, optimization is usually more successful. It's about that kind of continued analysis and review of what's there, feeding those change requirements into a backlog, prioritizing them and working through them. Lots of companies still don't really understand what UX is about. But the way I kind of have started to see some insourcing of UX, either people or, or some of the mindset, is digital, digital platforms have started to become like the core lifeblood of interaction between the business and its customers. So just like most companies have, or if not all, have a, a, a finance division, because that's something, it's a lifeblood of the business that they have to do. I think that's what we will see, you know, happening within kind of UX design. Businesses will increasingly want to kind of build their own teams and have this capability at all times. And I I think that makes a lot of sense. And we've certainly seen some of our clients starting to move in that direction because, like you say, they can really feed into the whole development process 
rather than just attempting to bolt it on at the end when actually there might be some fundamental challenges that are difficult to just polish off. So really great to hear. So the exciting news for you is that you've written a book. Yeah, I must be crazy. (laughs) It's great. I'm excited to read it. It's called The Oxytocin Organization. And as far as I understand it, so it's about the recipe for organizations to try and put participation really at the heart of their business and thinking about the intersection between culture, data, and experience. Where did this book come from? What inspired you to take on writing a book? I know people always say that everyone has a book in them. Well, I never had the desire to kind of find out. But I produced three roadmaps, probably over the space of about 18 months, for some pretty large and well-known retail businesses. And in short, these, these roadmaps failed because the clients were only interested in quick wins. And they wanted to do it themselves. And they didn't know how. And there was an almost week-to-week or month-to-month pressure on delivering revenues. And... I was trying to kind of figure out, even with one uh, organization, I spent some extra time, I was illustrating. If you really want to have that habit formation, you want your customers coming to you really frequently, selling them more products isn't going to do that. Some of your products are great, and they might even only buy one once every eight to 10 years. So trying to get them to do something weekly, we need to think different. And I realized there was actually no methodology for it. This is not about some you know, really smart, big consultancy coming in, doing all the heavy lifting thinking, and ultimately de- delivering a kind of a whole turnkey end-to-end service. But I think those days of our, are, are, are coming to a close. This is, like we're saying, with the insourcing agenda. This is about clients doing it for themselves. And I thought, well, there's no methodology for how do you engage and build a community you know whether that's like kind of employees to employees and customers and I thought this is incredibly hard and it's really slow and I've done it myself but organically and I couldn't work out as a process how you went and did that so I thought what I should do is I should codify it actually for myself first of all this didn't start off (laughs) as an actual book it started off as a as a method to document the methodology. And I thought, well, this is probably going to be some value for other people to use. And most recently, I've been working with the leading charity, Mind, and come to recognize that there's real challenges out there with something around 30% of the UK at any one time experiences mental health issues. And I thought, well, if businesses can be engineered, so... People can have better well-being. There's a responsibility there on those businesses. Then I should put this out there as a as a tool, uh, you know, as a suite of kind of techniques for businesses to do themselves. So this methodology that you developed through the process of writing that book and kind of codified, did you use that with your work with Mind, or do you have any other kind of examples of? where you've been able to follow that methodology through and and helped companies recognize how to put participation at the heart of what they're doing yeah i think i think it's happened kind of organically as in through observing what are the kinds of needs and goals of individuals 
making things as relevant as possible and you know making them easy to use better usability i think that's something that has kind of happened but in terms of a company that's been putting participation probably quite at the heart from day one i haven't been involved in it myself i think uh, rafa the, the cycling brand i think they've always had this blend of commercial and, and a really strong kind of social manifesto at their heart. They had this kind of quite clear mandate from the outset that they were all about road racing, but the community of cycling. They've got these customers that just talk about that stuff 24-7, and they are they are the brand's most powerful advocates. Most of the brand doesn't need advertising because that's what its community does. And I think participation sometimes people might but well might be mistaken and thinking it's some kind of fluffy you know csr initiative but really it's about laying the foundation for this age of being responsible responsible as a brand by bringing people together just to alleviate the addiction to the black mirror because the next kind of big age uh, that i kind of forecast is this age of automation and that is really, you know, coming back to behavioural economics and behavioural change. If we really want things to genuinely have good effect, then things have to be done for us. We can't, how many interventions can we receive on, a, you know, via a kind of a push message on a phone? And I think we're really talking about participation in brands like Rafa actually is genuine and equals more trust. And that trust is the key when it comes to automation. We're only going to allow automation for brands that we believe in. That really resonates with a lot of what we've been talking about in a lot of situations with the challenges of cognitive loading and the promises of automation for helping us to make better decisions and more satisfying decisions as well, using our cognitive energies for things that we really believe in and buy into rather than dealing with coping with a lot of push marketing from brands instead devoting it to pull marketing or evangelism for brands that we truly care about and we've got a couple uh rafa advocates road cyclists in our london team so that's a certainly relevant example for us too to kind of close things off, I'm sure you probably get asked this a lot when you are being asked about your book and you've designed a whole wonderful methodology and I'm going to ask you the annoying interviewer question about if you had one piece of advice to give to companies about what are some of the most important steps to really building participation into their processes, what would you advocate for? Well, I've probably got about 15 answers to that, but <laughs> I'll try and summarize it. I think it's about being responsible for better social relationships. The answer isn't always on a screen. Just because technology allows us to deploy an intervention, it doesn't mean that's the right thing to do. We, we can get really obsessed about individual behavioral change. We can say, well, you know, what, what do we want here? You know, we want this person to kind of eat better. So we, we start thinking around kind of cataloging and deploying notifications and, you know, on paper, they make are a lot of sense. But actually, when you kind of ladder up how many of these things could be running consecutively, we have the possibility of bombarding individuals and overloading them. This is where we talk about kind of habit formation 
as a positive outcome of behavioural change. But we do run the risk of building addictions. That's what we actually don't want as an outcome. What we want to do is build resilience, and resilience is built through this kind of then of being creative, doing things that are physical, and being social. My biggest thing is is around kind of how can you encourage better social relationships, and that's not through kind of leaderboards on a mobile app. I mean, recently in a pretty large project, project as a consortium for Bayes, and the government department for business energy and industrial strategy that was about business energy change we were doing some pretty super advanced things like disaggregation which means we could spot that a fridge compressor was starting to perform badly before anybody would notice just from the data and that that technology was powering some very sophisticated interventions and they would lose lose their effectiveness really quickly and quite honestly they were simply ignored and you have to use kind of the game mechanics of people in the real world, not about kind of mo mobile phone apps and usual gamification measures. So people can start to tackle things as a team rather than just an individual. And what you need to do, I think my long-winded answer is prototype it early. See how you can get people being more social and how kind of genuine long-lasting uh, that design approach can be. Brilliant. Well, thank you, John. And I think that's a great call to action, as well as some themes that uh, we'll be picking up with other guests on the podcast who are going to come on to talk about the intersection of behavioral science and technology. But for now, this just leaves me to say thank you, John, for joining us on the podcast. It's been really great to have you. Thank you very much. And hopefully I'll see you soon. Bye.